This is a Federal News Network podcast. With a continuing resolution in place for at least a while, Congress can turn its attention to whatever ambitions it may have for infrastructure. But the going is getting tougher, so no telling whether the bureaucracy will have however many trillions dropped on it. We get the latest from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, the continuing resolution then has really pushed any sort of action on a permanent or 2022 appropriation off until they absolutely have to, fair to say? That's correct. We have two deadlines now looming in December. The first is the government funding, which runs out on December 3rd. Uh, That's as a result of the continuing resolution. Uh, Hanging over all that, of course, is no agreement on how much to spend in total on the annual appropriations, let alone some of the other stuff we'll talk about. And then the other thing that Congress did over the last couple of weeks was increase the debt limit by $480 billion to give them some wiggle room into December as well. So in December, we're looking at this collision of the need to fund the government and the need to do something again about the debt limit to make sure that they can finance the operations that they need to carry out once they pass that government spending. That's aside from these larger packages, which really are the things front and center in most members' minds as they return to Washington. And it's gotten more acrimonious, even if that's possible, because the sides, you know, you've got those two Democratic senators who were expressed reservations for the size of these bills, and they're really getting dumped on by other Democrats. And so the question is, Will that bring them into submission or will that drive them further away? You know, maybe they'll become Republicans or something. Well, I mean, unlikely. <laughs> probably unlikely those two. But um, when you look at the reconciliation process, which is very partisan by its very nature, so it splits the majority and the minority. This is all on the majority side of the aisle. So, again, you have you can lose three votes in the House right now if you're Nancy Pelosi. And if you're Chuck Schumer, you can lose zero votes. So that gives individual members a lot of power here. On the Senate side, we have Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who are not comfortable at all with the $3.5 trillion number that was floated along the way this summer. And that's put a lot of downward pressure on how much they're going to spend on this bill. There's still no agreement in place between the moderates and progressives on the Democratic side, how much to spend. And once you come up with that number, you have to figure out how to cram the policy in it. There's so much focus on the dollar amount here, but what's really at stake is what sort of policy provisions you put in there, how long they run for, how much they cost, and on the other side, how much you bring in in revenue or cut other spending to try to offset that to get to you know a net zero number or maybe even deficit reduction, which is what some people are pushing for. So a, a lot at stake and a lot to kind of figure out still. Yes, and uh, something that has been reported here and there, but for those that like process, we should point out that the parliamentarian has been kind of throwing darts and not allowing certain procedures that would be convenient for the people trying to get this bill across. That's right. So the parliamentarian has a a lot of authority here, although ultimately it's the Senate that makes this decision, and she would say she's just upholding the rules. But this reconciliation process only is supposed to carry provisions that have actual impact on the budget, or non-incidental is the the language they use. Um, And this has already caused trouble for immigration provisions, people who would like to see permanent protections for the so-called DREAMers or other immigration changes. The parliamentarian rule that those provisions don't qualify, so probably won't make the cut. If you remember back earlier this year, there was talk about using the minimum 
reconciliation for the minimum wage, that didn't make the cut either. So this isn't a limitless procedure. The Democrats can't stick anything they want into this package has to affect the budget. Now, many things, as we know, do affect the budget, everything from expanding Medicare benefits, expanding Medicaid, doing climate change provisions, which is something that I think we're going to see a lot of trading around as they figure out how big to make this package. So there's a lot of policy in here in a lot of areas that touch the budget. So if not for cinema and mansion, then they would have had their reconciliation vote by now. Well, without them, I mean, if they had agreed, they could have 50-50 vote and push it through. Without them, you know, it's 48-52 against the bill, basically. So without them, it can't really move. Um, On the House side, there's still trading going on there because even some of what they talked about didn't pass muster with their members. They had to pull the drug pricing provisions they've been seeking out of one of the components, could still make the final cut, but three people voted against it in committee, and that was enough to force them to take it out at that stage. So there's a lot of members to mollify here and I don't see the path yet, but that doesn't mean they won't find it. But it's going to take a lot of work and face-to-face talks with people back in town. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. So therefore, this week will be a week of negotiating and no votes, do you think? Well, I think we'll see votes on the floor on more routine legislation. Um, On the Senate side, there's potentially a big showdown vote coming on the latest version of an elections procedure overhaul that Democrats would like to push through. Uh, The challenge there is that's a bill that takes 60 votes. Uh, Even with all 50 Democrats backing it, if there aren't 10 Republicans, that bill is not going to move forward. It's most unlikely that it will get those extra 10 Republican votes that it would need because Republicans have pushed back on these bills as federalizing procedures that they would prefer to see at the state level. Um, Democrats are concerned about what they've seen at the state level and are trying to push some federal protections um, as they see it on these procedures. So I think you'll see a lot of debate. There will probably be a big vote um, and that will really awaken the debate over changing the rules for Senate debate to try and force this legislation forward. A lot of progressives would like to see the filibuster blown up specifically on this piece of legislation. But as we saw on the debt limit, there's not appetite in the Democratic caucus to blow that up yet. And a small but important thing to federal employees is a full Senate vote on the nominees for the Merit Systems Protection Board. I think they were voted out of committee okay, but any sign of that coming up anytime soon? Well, their nomination procedures, they've been churning through those on the floor. There's a couple of judges slated for this week. Maybe after they get over that vote on the elections bill, they'll turn back to nominations. Um, We do see groups go every now and then by voice vote. Not sure if the Merit System Protection Board candidates would fall into that category, but there's a big backlog of nominees still pushing through ambassadors, people at these boards, you know, the assistant secretary levels that they're churning through over time. So we'll see a lot of hearings and committee action on that again this week. And Chuck Schumer will do his best to pencil those in wherever he can. And they like to get the NDAA done by the end of the calendar year. It's getting a little bit touch and go here. What's the movement on the National Defense Authorization Act? The House passed its version before it went on its two week break. The Senate version is sitting there ready to go, I think, whenever they can schedule time and probably give themselves several days to deal with that. You know, that bill can linger on the floor for a week as they figure out what amendments to accept. That could move once they get it off the Senate floor. There's obviously differences between the bill, but if they can agree in both the House and the Senate for that $25 billion increase over what President Biden wanted in his request, that'll make it a lot easier. That's the one top line where we may finally be seeing some consensus that could trickle down to the annual appropriations process as well. But that bill, I think, will be a pretty big agenda item at some point this fall. 
first on the Senate floor and then some sort of House Senate compromise. All right. So then everything's crowded out basically by these couple of really large items. Have you ever recalled a season like this where so much routine legislation gets crowded out by a couple of behemoths like the infrastructure bills? Well, certainly if we think back to the Affordable Care Act days um, back in 20. 2009 and then 2010 when the last push was happening. Um, there's a lot of off-the-floor action, a lot of negotiation, a lot of selling to the members. So that that does take it, you know, off the floor. The the House will keep busy. They're they're always churning through bills under suspension of the rules that are less controversial, but can have a big impact if it's your office that's affected or your program being renewed. Um, but you know, th- there are these four big questions still: the big infrastructure bill, the social spending climate change package, and then annual spending NDAA. And the debt limit, that, that's a lot to keep any Congress busy, but they will still churn through some other legislation because committees are you know, producing work all the time. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.